Now, if you're 40 seconds and above, then you'll be able to breathe less hard for longer. We want to be able to outlast our opponent because then our skills won't break down in the middle of the fight or the match or the game or the whatever, right? Whatever competition you're in. So it's about breathing less hard, longer, so you continue to liberate oxygen, so you continue to manage your blood chemistry in the middle of an event. This is the Plant Fueled Podcast. My name is Cass Warbeck. I'm a medical student, plant-based athlete, and vegan lifestyle advocate. This podcast is all about bringing you conversations to optimize your health and elevate your performance. Hey everyone, today we're going to start covering a topic I'm really interested in lately. We're going to dive into the power of the breath and breathwork practices and how changing your breath can have a profound impact on your health, well-being, and athletic performance. But before we dive into that, just a quick shout out to my show sponsor, Warlock Golf. Warlock Golf knows that winter can be a lonely time for a golfer, so why not give them, or yourself, something to cheer about this holiday season? Warlock Golf has made it easy to find everything you need for the golfer on your list. Save money and take the guesswork out of shopping with the Warlock Golf Holiday Bundle. Each bundle is filled with golf gear and apparel that will keep the golfer in your life looking and playing good all year round. So start stroking names off your holiday list today by visiting warlockgolf.com and using discount code PLANT15 for 15% off your order. That's code PLANT15 for 15% off your holiday order at warlockgolf.com. All right, so joining me today is Brian Mirabella, a human performance specialist with a focus on breathwork. He's a lifelong athlete with over three decades of personal training experience. His introduction to foundational breathing was reading the book, The Oxygen Advantage, which was actually the first book on breathwork I read as well. He has personally revolutionized his own health through the breath, and he is passionate about helping others do the same. Brian is an Oxygen Advantage instructor and the founder of Quantum Fitness, and he works with a range of clients, including top executives, Olympic athletes, those with chronic health conditions, and everyone in between. His mission is to provide tools for healthy living, longevity, and self-empowerment. Today, we discuss why chronic overbreathing is detrimental, why carbon dioxide is underrated, how to improve your carbon dioxide tolerance for better health and athletic performance, and why you should always be breathing through your nose. Personally, I learned a lot from this conversation, and I hope you do as well. And fun fact, he's also a raw fruitarian, so of course we chat about that as well. On that note, Brian does make a few claims in regards to cooked food and vegetable consumption that I do not personally agree with, but I like to keep an open mind, and I was happy to hear about his personal experiences. Regardless, he has a wealth of knowledge, and please enjoy our conversation. Hey, Brian, welcome to my podcast. I'm really excited to talk to you today. Thank you for having me, Casey. This is going to be great. Yeah, I'm so excited. There's so many things we'll dive into, but um, just for the audience, I came across your Instagram and honestly, I knew I had to have you on the podcast. Not only are you a breathwork practitioner, but you're a fruitarian, which is pretty cool. So we're definitely going to get into that a little bit. But first, maybe can you give a quick overview of your athletic background and your coaching experience? Sure, sure. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. I'm so awesome that you reached out because where I feel like we're kindred spirits. We're both plant-based pretty much. So, uh, you know, talking to someone like you who's got your background is really exciting and I'm happy to be here and to share with you. Um, my, my history is that I'm 52 and when my mom gave birth to me, I was already an athlete. <laughs> I mean, she said that my terrible two has lasted till I was five. <laughs> And uh, I've been, you know, from even at five years old, I was already beating the eight and nine year olds in races on my block. 
So I've always been fast. I've always been, my grandfather called me a monkey. So I've identified with the fact of being an active person my whole life. And I identify less with the things I've been told and more with my intuition now than anything else. But um, I grew up as pretty much a, a wrestler. So at 14, I started wrestling. And then I retired when I was 26. Um, and then I became a powerlifter, which destroyed my body. But I was able to squat 622 pounds, drug-free. And then um, I was an athlete till now. But at the age of 39, my body really started to break down. And it was breaking down long before that. But I was always able to recover from an injury. And it wasn't until 39 where I partially 90% tore my left biceps tendon. Mm -hmm. And then a year later, I started to herniate my discs in S1, L5. And then I had this moment where I was stepping off a bus with packages from the supermarket. And as I stepped off the bus, I misjudged the step. So when I landed, it shot like a reverberation in my back. And I heard, and I heard the disc rupture. And from that moment on, I was crippled. And uh, my son's stepdad happens to be an orthopedic surgeon, one of the best in America. And he said, people like you with your MRI are begging me to operate. But I said to myself, well, if a starfish can regrow a leg and you could take out half a person's liver and the liver grows back, then that means I can heal my soft tissue. But I didn't know how. I just somehow knew I could. And then I anguished for two and a half years. And then my awakening began in 2012, not coincidentally, as the energies grew in the, on, the, on earth, I became vegetarian and I gave up meat. And I had been a staunch meat eater and dairy eater and weed eater my whole life, but I wasn't fat. I was always ripped to shreds. I was much bigger, but you can be really lean and still be unhealthy because it means your body's holding on to a lot of uric acid from all the processed foods and the meats. So um, I anguished for two and a half years. And then in 2012, I found the Thomas Myers anatomy trains. And that's when my healing of my, my mind, my body, and my spirit began. And uh, here we are 10 years later to be able to discuss it. And I do believe that I have a really beautiful story to share when it comes to my own journey. And especially in the last two and a half years of being becoming a fruitarian, each step I've taken has gotten better and better and the healing's gotten deeper and deeper. That's incredible. I can tell you have, there's so much to you. There's so much depth here. And maybe we can start off um, just initially. Why did you go vegetarian initially? Like what was the catalyst for that change? I don't know. You know, it wasn't, Sad to say, it wasn't for the animals. It was more for my own health. I was hearing, I think I read The Omnivore's Dilemma by Bill Pollan because somebody referred it to me. And um, I just knew that, okay, a lot of the things in the book said that about digestion. And I was like, well, I don't have good digestion. I have irritable bowel syndrome. When I fart, it would smell up an entire, like literally Penn Station. I, I remember a moment where I was getting on a bus and I was farting and the whole station was just dying and people were screaming. I mean, that's how bad it was because these things, were, these things were rotting inside my body and I wasn't going to the bathroom. And if I was going to the bathroom every day, that didn't mean anything because it was just compacting 
for 42 years inside of my intestines. So it was more for my own health. And then at 46, I became vegan. But each transition wasn't cold turkey. There was transitions. I When I gave up meat, I think I went the first month without any meat. And then I let a little chicken slip in. And then, you know, maybe a month would go by and a little chicken. And then I think a year later, I had bread meat. And then I was like, you know what? That didn't make me feel good. And I gave that up, but I had gone a year and I, and then here and there, I would let slip chicken. And then I think once or twice in the first year fish. So it wasn't like, you know, I just said, mm-hmm. okay, I'm never eating meat again. It was very difficult because when you put food in your body, it decomposes into bacteria and those bacteria line your intestines and your colon and your gut, your GI tract. And the most amount of neurons are in your gut. So all those bacteria emit frequencies and they force you to feed them. So you think it's free will. You think, oh, I want that meat. Oh, it's so good for me. It tastes good. But it's because these bacteria are dying and they're emitting these frequencies. And then the human being, because you're literally the host, right? They don't know they're bad. They're living inside of you, but they're not bad. There's no such thing as that. And then the more time goes by, the more they die off, the less cravings you have. And then I went vegan at 46, which is almost six years ago, this Christmas, this New Year's Eve. And uh, um, the same thing. I was having a very hard time giving up eggs because I loved eggs, you know. But again, I was putting all that albumin in my body and I was not feeling good. My kidneys were not functioning very well. I started seeing a, uh, a gifted acupuncturist when I was 47. And she said to me, she's Eastern European, Polish. So her bedside manner isn't so great. So she was very direct. So in my first session, she said, let me see your tongue. She said, oh my God. She said, let me hear your pulse. And she said, guys like you have a heart attack in your sixties and die. And I was like, what? I mean, just like that. And I was like, and I, I looked at my body you know, like egoic. And I was like, look at me. And she said, that doesn't mean anything. But I listened to her and I was like, okay, keep talking. At first I was in shock. And then I was like, keep talking. So she said, your kidneys are not functioning. They're not filtering your, your stomach, your spleen, your liver. She basically told me that all my organs were doing poorly. And I was like, okay, so what do I do? And she said, well, you have to give up meat. And I said, well, that's good. I gave up meat four years ago. And she said, okay, that's a good start. She's like, boy, you're so we, you know, we started talking about my sleep. She said, you don't sleep very well, do you? And I said, no. She said, uh, do you sweat at night? And I said, very much so. So she knew all the things because she's done this for 25 years. So she knows what the symptoms are when she sees how the needles read. At that moment, I wasn't financially able to constantly see her. So for two and a half years, I wasn't really getting anywhere because I would go maybe every other week, maybe every three weeks, because I didn't even know that you need, even though it's beneficial, you need to go every week. You have got to go have, if you're that dysfunctional, you have got to go every week. So after two and a half years, she said to me, you know, I said, you know, Agnieszka, my, my hands still get numb in the winter. And my, and my feet, my toes. And she said, because you have Reynolds disease. 
And I was like, what's that? And she said, it's a thinning out of the blood. And I was like, okay, I can heal it, right? Because by that time I had already healed my herniated discs because I was seeing a Thomas Myers master teacher for structural integration. And I had been seeing a network chiropractor who has his third eye open and he could read your emotions. And I was able to fully heal both of my herniated discs. My, my discs have grown back. My back is, is better than it's ever been before. I can throw an 80 pound wrestling dummy, like it's nothing. So I already knew I could heal. So now that wasn't her expertise. So she said, well, I don't think so. She said, with your dysfunctional kidneys and the organs the way they are, she said, basically, you're just going to have to try to fight for the rest of your life to keep yourself not deteriorating. And that didn't sit well with me. So I didn't yell at her. I didn't say anything. But I said, well, I need to I need to find someone who believes I can heal because I need that energy. Like my chiropractor always believes that you can you can heal everything. So I left her and I got a referral to this Qigong master Chinese man who's an acupuncturist, but he was a gastroenterologist for 15 years in China. Then he got offered to come to America to study. And he had always done acupuncture because in China they believe in it. So they they believe in medicine last. They believe in they believe in herbs first, medicine last. Medicine is only when you're really dysfunctional and that's only for a short period of time. Not like here where you live on it. So um, I told him about her and he said, give me her assessment. And I told him and he said very, very nicely with his hands like this. And he said, I agree with her assessment. And I was like, what? That was two and a half years ago. You're telling me nothing changed? And I was like, God. And I, and I started to feel a little depressed. Mm-hmm. I was like, maybe it's true. So I said, okay. All right. So he told me about my kidneys. It's my primordial chi energy. Your kidneys are your most important organ in your body. It's not your heart. It's not your brain. It's your kidneys. Because your kidneys feed your heart. So if you can't eliminate waste, then you can't, you, you're not going to thrive. It's basically slowly dying your whole life. It's oxidative stress. And this all ties into breathing too. Mm-hmm. So um, after, after um, a year of seeing him, I said, okay, I'm, I'm Dr. Ming. I've been researching and I'm actually going to become a fruitarian. And he said, you need protein. I don't think you should do that. I said, Dr. Ming, I haven't had protein for the last six years. I said, I guess I never told you that. And he said, okay, well, you, you need to eat a lot more. So I started on the diet. I said, well, I'm going to do it anyway. So I started eating fruit and a month into it. Now I was seeing him every week at that time. I said, okay, I'm making an effort. I'm seeing him every week. And he listened to my pulse. He looked at my tongue and he said, wow, you're changing rapidly. This diet's really working for you. And you should stay on it. I'm learning from you. And that was the kind of information I needed to hear. Somebody here, okay, all right. I I know what I know, but I know what I don't know. So, or I don't know what I know, right? What I know. Mm -hmm. So uh, eight months into it, he said to me, okay, this is amazing, Brian. Every week you're getting better and better. He said, I know I told you that you shouldn't be on this diet. He said, but what you've done with your body is nothing short of remarkable. And I'll have to add too that I don't, 
well, I shouldn't say it like this, that I don't believe in consuming vegetables, but I'm not plant-based. I'm a fruitarian. I believe in a mucus-free diet. And if I do eat greens, they're leafy greens. I don't eat vegetables because vegetables have cellulose in them. And the human being does not make the enzyme cellulase to digest vegetables. So mm-hmm. um, that's, that's where like the insoluble fiber comes from though, the cellulose. Like, so do you generally, it just passes right through us and does have benefits in that way. Like, what are your thoughts on that? Um, yeah, well, that's in fruit, insoluble fiber, mm-hmm. right? Veg- and- vegetables as well. Well, not so much in vegetables. It's much, much harder to digest in vegetables. Much, much harder. We're not herbivores. We only have one stomach and we have a short GI tract. So anybody who wants to tell us that we're like herbivores, it's not true because herbivores have multiple stomachs and longer GI tracts. Is it better than meat, dairy, and grains and fish? Of course, mm. but it's, it's not the highest level, whereas fruit is. It's not even close. How long have you been fruitarian now? 32 months. And vegetarians... I think most of them too are eating cooked food mm-hmm. and cooked food is that's not vegan. That's cooked vegan. Vegan is eating raw. <laughs> you don't cook your food. You don't kill the angstroms in the food, right? You don't, you don't de- destroy the bioenergeticness of the food. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like say I've, I tried a raw vegan diet for a while. Um, when I first went vegan actually, and, um, I was probably about 90% raw when I initially tried it and I did feel good. And I just found it difficult to consume enough calories. And that was just my experience. So adding raw food or cooked foods back in for me has helped, especially fueling my fighting career. And that's just my own personal experience, but I, I love fruit. I adore fruit. I eat a very high carb um, vegan diet. Um, I would honestly love to hear what a typical day of eating looks like for you. Well, I, I, I've never counted calories in my life. Not even when I was trying to be big and muscular, Mm -hmm. I used to squat 622 pounds. But um, I mean, look at, you know, look at me. I mean, do I look weak? No. <laughs> Not in the slightest. Yeah. I mean, and I'm pretty muscular and I'm strong, so I don't count calories. But in a typical day for me is fasting for 16 hours. And then um, for the next four days, I'm going to consume nothing but Concord grapes because they're in season in New York state. And uh, so I'm only going to be doing Concord grapes for the next four days. Um, and I, I don't know how much calories I'm taking in. It doesn't matter to me. So I, I eat when I feel hungry. I'm fascinated by this. Um, I have to ask, is protein a concern? Because I know my audience will be wondering, do you worry about how much protein you're getting? Um, obviously not, but I'm wondering, um, how does fruit provide enough for the high level activity that you do? Well, this is another beautiful topic of discussion because I think I'm at a level that very few people in the world are. And it's being able to be a fruitarian and be muscular and strong and wrestle and do everything I did when I was 20 that I can do at 52. And that was after being a broken down man. So uh, for the last five and a half years, I've been consuming marine phytoplankton. And I don't, uh, the body doesn't need protein. It needs essential amino acids, which are the monomers that make up proteins. And the hominid, when we were living in Pangaea, it was mostly a tropical forest. And the hominid were, were eating fruits. They weren't walking over to, first of all, there wasn't things like peppers and squash. These are all hybridized vegetables. You know, the, the, the hominid wasn't eating plants because they, they would taste terrible. 
they were seeing these bright colored fruits on the vines and they were eating these juicy, delicious, sugary, watery fruits. And then they were disseminating the seeds as they walked around the forest so the plant could proliferate itself. And marine phytoplankton, if you're afraid of not getting in enough protein in your body, if you're afraid of not getting all the vitamins and minerals from being a fruitarian or a vegan, which vegans do suffer because they don't get vitamin K, then marine phytoplankton is the secret ingredient because it has all the essential building blocks of life. It has everything you need, every life form on earth, except probably for us, because I believe something different, came from marine phytoplankton. When I do, when I eat this, I'm detoxifying my body. And with my breath work, I'm also learning to feed off my own lactic acid, which again is people, most people don't understand. Mm -hmm. I, I, I do want to get, we're going to get into the breath work a bit later. So does the marine phytoplankton contain B12 and all the essential, like yes. anything essential that you'd need that fruit doesn't contain, I guess? Yes. Okay. And this might be a silly question, but is marine phytoplankton similar to like spirulina or chlorella is, or is that different? It's, it's similar, but it's, uh, it's a higher life form mm. because spirulina, spirulina and chlorella don't have all the essential, essential amino acids, essential fats, all the vitamins and almost all the minerals. So it is the complete food. Yeah, no, I've learned so much. And I, I know the, the sea life are very, very nutrient rich. That's another great observation because we, as humans, when you talked about being nutrient rich, it's true, but what's most important for a human being to do is to eliminate waste. That's why there's two kidneys. That's why there's two lungs. That's why the skin is the largest organ on the body because all of them eliminate and all the other organs, there's only one of each. And, and the liver is the largest organ because it has to detoxify. It's a chemical factory. So if you think about it, we're always eliminating, we're always alkalining, we're always neutralizing acid in our body because we are a self-replicating, self-generating system. And the marine phytoplankton is the ocean's detoxifier. And David Attenborough had it on in his last, you remember the series Planet Earth? Yes. Well, he's got... Well, it's not new anymore. It's like four or five years old, but Our Planet is on Netflix. It's like the upgraded version. Mm -hmm. And in episode six, the first 30 minutes of this hour episode is all about marine phytoplankton. <laughs> I'm going to have to watch that. <laughs> yeah. And again, it, it's 80% of the biomass of the ocean. And I believe it gives, I give, believe it gives like 60% of the oxygen to the world. So it eats all the carbon dioxide. It takes in like 80% of the CO2 of the, of the world. I mean, it, it's incredible. So when you put this living organism in your body, not only do you detoxify your body, not only do you oxygenate your body, get all the mineral, get all the, the perfect food you need that feeds your hypothalamus gland, which is that master gland in the center of your head that conducts God's symphony. So when you feed the hypothalamus gland, the perfect food, then it's a synergistic effect in the body because there are no parts that you're learning in school. We're woven through all the beauty of a synergistic system. And you can't say, oh, we're going to make a thing for this and a thing for that. And we're going to only study the lymphatic system because that's ridiculous. Yeah, I do agree with that. The, the modern medicine is very reductionistic um, and it's more about the whole organism. Like the whole is more than the sum of its parts is I think 
T. Colin Campbell coined that, but um, yeah, no, I'm in agree with agreement with that. And although I'm training in Western medicine, obviously my goal ultimately is to um, focus on preventative medicine and focus on the whole body and not these single organ systems. So one more quick question on the uh, marine phytoplankton. Um, do you have a specific brand that like, just for anyone listening, if they wanted to search it, is there a specific brand that you um, feel comfortable with or where do you buy yours? Yes. Uh, I, I have been taking this brand. I, I will only take one. It's from Ascended Health, A-S-C-E-N-D-E-D, ascendedhealth.com. I believe they're the most higher conscious company I've ever come across. I think we should probably transition into uh, the breathwork side of things because it's it's fascinating and I'm really excited to share some of this with my audience. So I guess, can you first... Um, like, can you talk to how you first discovered the impact that breathing can have on health and wellness? Yeah. Um, I followed Wim Hof five years ago and Wim Hof had made breathing very popular. Mm -hmm. So I started doing his technique, which is hyperventilation and, um, strong hyperventilation. And, uh, last it was January, this January is five years ago. We had our coldest January in New York city history. And it was one day where it was five degrees and my son and I took ice baths on in five degree weather. And then we went outside with a 17 degree wind chill and we were out there for 30 minutes and I didn't feel the cold. I mean, I was in shorts and we were meditating in the snow and I did become superhuman with the cold weather, but I wasn't feeling any better. I had dysfunctional breathing from the time I was born. And I do have to digress a little when I, when I get into the breathing, because I have to tell you my story. Mm -hmm. um, in 1969, women, um, they didn't know much about pregnancy. And my mom said uh, most of her friends were smokers. My mom was a smoker when she was 13. When she got pregnant at 25, she didn't stop smoking. They didn't tell her to stop smoking. <laughs> so she smoked my whole pregnancy, her whole pregnancy. So I was, you know, my cells were under attack from the moment I was conceived. And when I was born, she didn't bottle feed me. And she was a very voluptuous Italian woman. So instead of giving me, you know, very much needed breast milk, she was feeding me bottle formula because that's what they did to children in 1969. They actually got away from breast milk for a long period of time, right? They were giving them bottles, formulas. So from the moment I was conceived, I was at a disadvantage. So uh, my whole childhood, I was always sick, quote unquote sick, and I couldn't breathe. I remember I've, my, if your nose is always clogged, you can't breathe. So I've been a mouth breather my whole life. And then I was always hurt in wrestling. I was always being hurt, but I thought, you know, I wrestle, I do an aggressive sport. But little did I know that it was me really more for mouth breathing because I was under a state of chronic hyperventilation. And a chronic state of hyperventilation, which I will get into a little bit more in this mm -hmm. dissertation. <laughs> yeah, is, I have a lot of follow-up questions, so don't worry, we're, we're going to get into that. Cool. Um, so I became a dysfunctional breather my entire life. And then I began the Wim Hof Method. And the Wim Hof Method made me more of a dysfunctional breather because it exacerbated my already hard, shallow, and fast breathing me mechanics. So a year after doing that, I went to a barefoot training seminar in New York City, and they had all these different speakers. 
And there was a woman, her name is Dr. Lois Laney. She's a cranial physiologist. She owns a sleep, she owns a sleep apnea center in Phoenix, Arizona. And she talked for an hour and a half. And I was blown away because she's her specialty is cranial nerves. And she was talking about breathing the whole time. And the hour and a half I was there, I was just blown away because it, everything she said, it sounded like she was speaking directly to me. And I started realizing how much dysfunction I had in breathing. And I was like, holy geez. And then the next day she came back and talked for another 90 minutes. And she was about to demonstrate this technique where she puts this Chinese analgesic called white flower oil on a Q-tip and she sticks the Q-tip deep into your sinuses. And the Q-tip, when it gets into your sinuses, it carries this, most of this, most of them are herbs and, and flowers, but it has menthol in it. So the menthol stimulates your limbic center, your middle brain, your emotional brain, where your amygdala is, where a lot of people you hear call the reptilian brain. But it's if you're locked in fight or flight from hard breathing your whole life, from breathing shallow, then your amygdala is constantly activated and the white flower oil can ground you. But it can also stimulate your sinuses to open. So she took the Q-tip. I immediately raised my hand. There were 40 people in the class. So I was the first one she demonstrated on and I regretted it because she took this Q-tip and she proceeded to shove it into my right nostril and I couldn't breathe at all. I thought I had thought because I had gone to an otorinologist. When I was 21, I had no surgery and they cleaned out my turbinates because that's what they did. They're like, okay, you broke in your nose four times. We're just going to go in there. We're going to shave down your turbinates. Little did I know, God, you never want to do something like that. You don't take out body parts. <laughs> so she said to me, Brian, how are you breathing? And I said, not good. You know, I work out, I get tired very easily. I can't work out like I used to. And here I am thinking, well, I've overcome these injuries. I'm 48 years old, you know, cause this, this October was, uh, is it four years? It's four years. I'm a breathing instructor. So I thought that, you know, I physiologically, I didn't understand that it was actually all about how I was breathing. With all the stuff I had been doing, the acupuncture, the chiropractor, the body work, it wasn't even really the tip of the top until I got into breathing. So she she stuck the Q-tip in my nose. I was dying. I was moving backwards. My eyes were tearing. I was crying. and But instantly, I felt a little better from it. And she actually forced it lovingly all the way into my nose. She, she said, you have, you have rhinosinuitis. You basically have it as bad as it can be. And I was told I had a hundred percent deviated septum. And this was after nose surgery, you know, 20 years before that. And now four years later, I have an open nose. I don't have a deviated septum anymore. And I didn't use any medical intervention. I did it all with the white flower oil and my breathing techniques. So I've been able to fully repattern the inside of my face through white flower oil and breathing techniques, which I teach. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I became a week later, thank God she's in Phoenix. So a week later, she was in New Jersey and she was having a certification course. So I immediately signed up for it <laughs> and I became a Dr. Lois Laney restorative breathing coach. And then two months later, I read the oxygen advantage this January and it was so far over my head. So was her class because we're never, I mean, I have every athletic certification under the sun 
studied with all the best movers on the world, and no one ever mentioned a thing about breathing. You know, the most they would say is breathe in your nose and out of your mouth. Or if you're doing a rep, breathe in, breathe out. Mm-hmm. Right. That's it. Nobody talks about breathing at all. Yeah, it's so underrated. <laughs> I feel these days it's finally coming into the light a little bit. And uh, the Oxygen Advantage, the book by Brian McEwen, that was the book I read that kind of turned okay. me on to. Yeah. Oh, sorry, Patrick. Sorry, I'm getting my people messed up. But yeah, that was the book that um, turned me on to the power of breathing myself. Um, and you're an Oxygen Advantage instructor, correct? Master instructor. Master yeah. instructor. Can you, um, and that was this year, earlier this year, when did this happen? I just, I just got promoted to master instructor about five weeks ago. Congratulations. So Thank what's you. the entire process like? And I've been an instructor, August was three years. So three, um, a little over three years. Um, well, right now it's online. I was lucky. I got to, to do it with Patrick in person. So I read the book. Uh, right now it's eight hours of classes online, but I read the book in that January and it was so far over my head and I had to read it again. And then I read it again. <laughs> and I, cause again, it was foreign to me. So then that he talks about the Buteco method because he was a 15 year Buteco instructor. He was a master instructor for Buteco and he ran, ran their clinic. So Patrick's, you know, dealt with thousands of people and, and terrible breathing things like sleep apnea and asthma and, you know, all of that can be cured. And I'm going to use that word, cured, <laughs> you know, without any medical intervention. So I said, okay, let me find out what Buteco is. Because I looked to see if Patrick was going to be doing any oxygen advantage instructor certifications. And they were in Europe. I couldn't make it there. So the first one was in Toronto in that August. So eight months away. So I looked about Buteco. And February, they were doing a beginner class. So I signed up for it. It was a month long. So I did the beginner class. Then we took a month off. Then I did the intermediate class for a month. Then we took a month off. And then I did the advanced class, which was with Christopher Drake, who studied with Professor Buteco himself for years until Professor Buteco passed away. And with this woman, Martha. And the three of them with Patrick were the main people of Buteco. But Patrick saw that Buteco was lacking things, especially for athletes. And they didn't want to change. They did not want to change the method at all. They wanted it exactly the way Professor Buteco taught it. So Patrick said, okay, well, I'm going to go out on my own. And he did. And I believe that we are a much more advanced version of Buteco. Buteco is still great, but knowing what I know now, I think that our method is a little bit I got to be careful with my words. Uh, just a little bit more advanced, just a little bit more cutting edge. And um, because I did Buteco, and then once I became Oxygen Advantage certified, I learned from him. And I said, okay, I'm going to remember what I learned from Buteco, but I'm going to do what he told me. <laughs> so, yeah, that's amazing. I've been wondering what the process is like. And um, I think the Oxygen Advantage really spoke to me because it was very, the physiology made sense. And a lot of the, everything that Patrick talked about, a lot of it was very new to me. Like, um, I think we're used to thinking about carbon dioxide as just a waste molecule, but it does so much more in the body than just, just that. And we'll talk about that a bit, but, um, I really resonated with the athletic performance side of it as well. Maybe we can just start with the basics. Um, because most people don't give a second thought to their breathing. Most people go about their day automatically just, um, 
many people breathing through their mouths or um, mostly chest breathing. Um, can you just explain like when you initially start to work with a client that might be new to your um, breathing practices, what is wrong with how most people breathe today? Well, the first thing you do is you just talk to them and you have a little bit of a discussion in the first five or 10 minutes. And while they're telling you about their issues, you watch and listen to them breathe. So there's three levels of breathing basically in Buddhism. The first is if I can hear you breathe, then you have dysfunctional breathing. It's bad. The second level of breathing is if I can hear myself breathe, I have dysfunctional breathing. Not quite as bad as the person next to me being able to hear it, but that's still bad. The third level of breathing is if you're breathing so light, so quiet, so calm that you don't even know you're breathing. That's like a baby, right? So when parents walk over to the crib, they're like, oh my God, my baby's not breathing. Because getting back to your original point, carbon dioxide, if you have a high threshold of carbon dioxide, then you're going to exhale very, very slowly because you're going to retain carbon dioxide. Now, the book could very easily be called the carbon dioxide advantage, but it wouldn't have sold copies because people think that's a waste gas. And here's another misnomer, especially in our world, that we consider carbon dioxide to be a bad gas, and it's not. So inside the body, every single tissue in your body produces carbon dioxide, and that's called metabolism. So I need to have a, a high threshold to carbon dioxide because carbon dioxide is the catalyst that signals hemoglobin to release oxygen from the red blood cell. Now, our method is based off the Buteco, Professor Buteco, it should really be considered one of the num one of the best scientists who's ever lived. He should be up there with Einstein, but he was behind the Iron Curtain. That's why nobody knew about him. And he was treated like a god because that's how Russia treated their scientists. And um, he realized that there was a law of respiration in 1904, and it was originated by Niels Bohr's father. So Niels Bohr won the Nobel Prize. Is this, is this the same as the Bohr effect? Yeah. So okay. his father, Christian Bohr, came up with this law, and they named it the oxygen hemoglobin disassociation curve. That's the scientific name for it. And of course, they called it the Bohr law. So when you're working with a client, you're listening to them breathe. You're listening to their issues, and then you want to be able to ascertain what their threshold to carbon dioxide is based off this physiological law of respiration. Now, I say it like that. I put the emphasis on like it on like that because it's a law, right? But yet it's not taught in schools. In all fairness, we are taught about that. That is sure. fundamental physiology. And maybe just um, so people understand a bit better, like when you talk about carbon dioxide threshold, just for those that don't know, um, carbon dioxide is actually the stimulus to breathe. Like our right. peripheral chemoreceptors are actually responsive to um, heightening levels of carbon dioxide. It's not, most people think that we get the urge to breathe because we're low on oxygen and that's not the case. It's the high levels of carbon dioxide. So when you're talking about threshold, the idea is we want a higher threshold so the carbon dioxide can build up more before we feel that urge to breathe. Is that correct? 
Yes. Okay. Yeah, the, the neural drive to breathe is to exhale, not to inhale. So when your peripheral chemoreceptors that are located at the base of your brainstem, this tiny cluster of neurons, when they sense that the carbon dioxide levels have gone up, the brain sends a message down the phrenic nerve, which originates at C4, C5. The phrenic nerve innervates the diaphragm and it tells the diaphragm to contract. So you can exhale the, the, the carbon dioxide and then inhale oxygen. So that's, that's how it works. That makes sense. And then yeah. I just want to go back into the, the Borla a little bit more. So sure. the hemoglobin disassociation curve that you're talking about, the idea is that um, at higher levels of carbon dioxide, we're going to release oxygen from the hemoglobin at the tissue level so that our muscles can take up the oxygen. And is that the idea? So that um, if we have really low levels of carbon dioxide all the time, as if we're, if we're chronically hyper ventilating, we're not going to have that stimulus at the tissue level for oxygen to be released. Is, am I understanding that right? Yeah, but it's not just the tissue level. It's that it's the whole, it's the whole body. Okay. Carbon dioxide is a hundred times more powerful than oxygen is for human. And I think it's something like six times more prevalent than as a molecule. So carbon dioxide is always looking for a red blood cell to go through the membrane to find hemoglobin so it can signal hemoglobin to release oxygen. So when you put a pulse oximeter on your finger, which most of us have had now in the world, everybody has experienced that due to COVID, you'll see that your oxygen saturation, which means the number that you see on the pulse ox, they don't want it to be below 95. If they see it below 95, then they're thinking you possibly could have a respiratory illness, which might be COVID, right? So if it's 96 to 99, which is healthy, that means that if it's 99, it means that 99% of every single oxygen molecule in your body is actually bound to hemoglobin. That's not necessarily a good thing. So if it's 99%, that means that your carbon dioxide level threshold is low. That means there's not enough CO2 present because you're bound, you're too bound oxygen and hemoglobin. So you really want to be fluctuating between 96 and 99 because oxygen needs a carrier in the blood. So that's why if you're 98, 99, only 2% of the soluble oxygen is, is free because it needs a carrier and that carrier is hemoglobin. Hemoglobin has a heavy, it's got an iron atom at the center. That's why iron is so important for us because it's the center of hemoglobin. So, which you can get from blueberries and you can get from raisins, <laughs> not meat. <laughs> so so um, if you're 96 to 99, if I'm 96, then 4% of my oxygen is soluble. So now my brain is a superhuman biocomputer. So if I'm 4% soluble, now the oxygen is getting into the muscle compartment it's getting into those tissues that are deficient. And so then we have more soluble oxygen that's being released that are is actually available for us to use. Yes. Okay. Okay. So maybe wrap, bring it back a little bit. Um, just to summarize, we want, most people don't have enough carbon dioxide in their bloodstream, correct? And we would want to increase the amount of carbon dioxide that we have and increase our carbon dioxide threshold 
so then essentially we're breathing less and retaining more carbon dioxide, which allows more of our oxygen to be released from our hemoglobin and available to use. Right. We okay. just, let, let's, let's put it this way too. We want to be able to produce our own CO2, which it's CO2 is a gasotransmitter. So it means it's naturally synthesized by the body. So when we do specific breath holding techniques, we can produce our own CO2. And I'm pretty sure that normal levels are between 32 and 37. But when you're in a breath hold, you can get your CO2 levels all the way up to 50. But you wouldn't stay at 50. You would want your chemoreception mm -hmm. through the balance between CO2 and oxygen to come back to baseline, right? You wouldn't want to stay at a high level. You'd probably want to be more in the 37 to 40 range all the time, right? Because that would mean that I'm constantly liberating oxygen from the red blood cells. So I would be between 96 and 98 all the time. And then I would have sufficient oxygen coursing through my body, getting into those tissues and those muscles that need it. You know, I used to be riddled with joint pain and I don't have joint pain anymore because I was low on CO2. I've been hyperventilating my whole life. Okay. So now that I'm oxygenated, my tissues can glide, slide, and rotate, whereas they couldn't do that before. They were dehydrated because they were oxygen starved and CO2 starved. Okay. So chronic hyperventilating leads to a reduction of carbon dioxide and then all these um, consequences that you've discussed. So I guess, um, how does someone stop chronically over-breathing or how can we increase carbon dioxide tolerance? Uh, there's a beautiful technique that we call many small breath holds. And uh, it's a very, very benign way of beginning. So all you would do is take a normal breath in and a normal breath out. People say, how much breath out? Whatever normal is. So as I exhale, I don't force all the air out. So as soon as I exhale, right before I would inhale again, I would pinch my nose. So I normal exhale, I pinch my nose and I hold my breath for two to five seconds. And then I wait 15 seconds. So in between, I make sure my mouth stays closed. In between, I wait 15 seconds and I do this for up to three to five minutes. So it does three things. It introduces air hunger into our body by, by uh, increasing a tolerable need to breathe. So two to five seconds is not hard for anybody to do. So we're, in, we're um, showing the body, we're giving it a tolerable need to breathe we're slowly increasing carbon dioxide. So by having that slight need to breathe, it signifies that carbon dioxide is increasing in our blood. And then we know that it's signaling hemoglobin to release oxygen. It's harnessing nasal nitric oxide, which is another topic we should talk about because we haven't talked about NO. Mm -hmm. As I do these two to five second breath holds, and I repeat this for three minutes, I'm slowly increasing CO2. I'm harnessing nasal nitric oxide. And when I let go, I take the nitric oxide deep into my lungs. My lungs are shaped like a triangle, right? So I'm more mostly an anterior creature unless I'm sleeping or lying down. So the blood pools at the bottom portion of the lungs. Nitric oxide, one of its many jobs is it takes the blood from the lower lobes and it flushes it to the upper lobes. And the highest concentration of alveoli are at the top. So when the blood gets to the top of the lung, then the oxygen that's already in the lung can be diffused into the alveoli and into the capillaries. So we call that 
alveolar ventilation. Mm -hmm. And while we're doing that, the third thing is that we're establishing diaphragmatic breathing because as we create that tolerable need to breathe by holding our breath for a short amount of time, it starts to prevent us from shallow breathing, from upper chest breathing. And all of a sudden people start to go, oh, wow, I'm not upper chest breathing. So, you know, you can have simply when you're doing the breath holds, when you exhale, pinch and hold, you could just have your hand here and you'll notice that in between the 15 seconds in between, you'll start to feel your hand move down here where your diaphragm is. So two to five second hold, 15 second break for three to five minutes. And that's a really beautiful way to slowly increase. And so it's not too too disconcerting because a lot of people have a hard time with breath holding. So we just gently introduce it into the body because breathing should always be gentle. So I believe in introducing it gently into the body. Thank you. That's a very practical exercise. So basically over time, we build up that tolerance to carbon dioxide and we're able to go a longer time without feeling that urge to breathe. So do you recommend people practice this once a day, twice a day? Um, well, we didn't talk about the actual... Um, so when we talked about our threshold to carbon dioxide, the Bohr law, there's a test that you can do. Is this the Bolt score? Right. So Great. can, yeah. Can you explain that? Sure. So ideally I would say that most people would need to practice this exercise. The one we just spoke about at least three to five minutes every hour, because most people that I've worked with have a low Bolt score and the Bolt score signifies what our threshold of carbon dioxide is. So it's a, you know, it's a little bit scientific. So medical textbooks say that normal breathing is breathing four to six liters of air per minute. So we can test that by doing a very calm breath hold. So this BOLT score, which is an acronym for body oxygen level test, in Buteco, they call it the control pause. So I'm controlling my breath. And as soon as I feel the need to breathe, I let go. So that need to breathe back to the CO2 is the neural drive to breathe. The brain senses that CO2 has just gone to a little bit too high, telling the diaphragm to contract so we can breathe. So with this test, we take a normal breath in a normal breath out. It's always the same cue. We pinch and we hold, close your eyes, and you sit and you wait for the first definitive sign to breathe. Now, it's a very hard test. It's easy, but it's subtle. And most of us have a hard time with subtle because we're breathing too hard to begin with. And when you're breathing too hard, you don't realize that you're constantly holding your breath and it's always on an inhale. And an inhale is creating pressure inside because an inhale is a sympathetic response and an exhale is a parasympathetic response. So with the Bolt score, you take a normal breath in and a normal breath out and you pinch and you hold. And when you feel that you're just needing to breathe, you let go. Now, when you let go, you should feel like you were not holding your breath. So, but most people don't know when the first sign to breathe is. And when they let go, they usually take, they take a big inhale. So when you let go of your nose, the first breath you take should be like the last one you took before you held your breath. It should be gentle. If it's anything more than gentle, you've held too long. Now, whatever that number is, it signifies 
what your threshold of carbon dioxide is. Now, if we're breathing four to six liters of air per minute, then our control pause should be 60 seconds. That's homeostasis. That's a lot. <laughs> I can tell you that I'm only around, I because it fluctuates, I'm around 38 to 44. That's impressive. I'm probably around 20, but it, I think just listening to you talk now, I always want to like try and hold it longer. And I feel like I'm holding it longer than I should be because I've, I'm feeling that urge to breathe it, but kind of pushing through it a little bit longer. So I think that's a very important uh, point you made that it's not, it's not fighting to hold your breath as long as possible. It's, it's hard, it's hard to explain. The yeah. Subtle. Yeah. Subtle is the right word. It's so hard to explain that. It is. Okay. You, you, have to feel it. you have to feel it. The only word I could say is subtle, but you really have to feel it. Okay. I say that it's slow to learn, but fast to master. Okay. Because after a month of practicing every day, because it took me about a month, I thought my control pause was 22 seconds and it turned out it was 11. Yeah, I'm probably much lower than I'm <laughs> thinking I am then. So the idea is um, we want a higher bolt score because that's signifying that we have a better carbon dioxide tolerance and we right. can get a higher bolt score by practicing those like many small breath holds that you were describing earlier. Yes. So okay. we can, so you asked how many times should you do it during the day? Mm -hmm. Well, if your control pause is under 15 seconds, then you should be doing it five to 10 minutes every hour because it's also gentle. So it's not hard to do. It's not going to make you feel like, Oh, I don't want to hold my breath. It's gentle. So the minimum five minutes every hour, but really more like anywhere between five and 10 minutes every hour. If your control pause is above 25 seconds, then it's still five minutes every hour because in oxygen advantage, our athletes, we want them to have a 40 second control pause. We don't want anything lower than 40 seconds. Because if it's less than 40 seconds and you're still struggling to breathe in your event, you're not going to be breathing too well if you're under 40 seconds in a high, high intensity event like Muay Thai. So you need to be 40 seconds, but it's okay. You're not, you know, it's nothing bad, but the research, we have research, we have a beautiful portal, instructor portal, and there's a science paper out there and I forgot who wrote it in the year, but it's pretty recent. If your control pause is under 25 seconds, you have an 89% chance of possibly incurring a chronic degenerative disease later in life. Because it takes years of bad breathing mm -hmm. till you get sick. <laughs> right? yeah, of course, and everything's so connected. It makes sense that dysfunctional breathing could lead to, I guess, like chronic yeah. inflammation or um, tendencies to yeah. develop other diseases as we age. Yeah. Not could does. Okay. Does <laughs> there's a causal effect there. Yeah. Because low CO2 means no liberating of oxygen, which means oxidative stress, which means inflammation. So. Okay. You know. um, can you explain why it's so beneficial to athletes that they have perhaps a bolt score of 40 seconds or longer? Like why is this advantageous um, for physical performance? Just so you don't breathe as hard as your competition. You don't want to breathe hard because you know, as a Muay Thai athlete, when your limbs go numb, you're done, right? And, me, and you know what that means? It signifies that your carbon dioxide levels have gone down so low that your lactic acid levels have increased. That means your blood pH has dropped 
to acidity. That's why the lactic acid burn comes on. That's why your body, your limbs go numb because your body is going to divert all the blood to the diaphragm in order to keep you alive. So it steals the blood from the extremities. Now, if you're 40 seconds and above, then you'll be able to breathe less hard for longer. And we want to outlast our opponent, right? We want to be able to outlast our opponent because then our skills won't break down in the middle of the fight or the match or the game or the whatever, right? Whatever competition you're in. So it's about breathing less hard, longer, so you continue to liberate oxygen. So you continue to manage your blood chemistry in the middle of an event. Okay, perfect. Yeah, definitely something to work towards. Um, I think this ties in a little bit as well um, to the importance of nasal breathing. And I know you kind of alluded to this a little bit earlier, but I know for myself personally, it's something I've been really trying to focus on. Like I nasal breathe throughout the day, like I don't have an issue with that, but I've really been focusing on nasal breathing during my workouts and during my runs. And I'm proud to say I can get through a 10K nasal breathing now, which I never even could come close to that before. So it's something I've been really working for. Um, I guess a broad question to you then is why should we really be trying to nasal breathe and what's, what is the importance of that versus mouth breathing? Right. Beautiful. Well, good job to you for being able to breathe through your nose for 10 K. Cause that's not easy. Thank you. Yeah. It's been a lot of work. <laughs> your coach though, I would also want to know how hard you're breathing even through the nose. Right? Probably so harder than I should be. Well, it's okay because you're, mm-hmm. you're, it, takes, it takes four months for the respiratory center to relearn how to breathe through the nose in exercise. So again, these aren't quick fixes, but four months out of the course of 26 years is not really that long, right? But the idea would be that you would still be able to cadence breathe while you're exercising and breathing through the nose because your nose imposes a restriction on your breathing. That's why it's, the nostrils are small because it's, it's actually slowing down the speed of air. So it has more time inside the sinuses to be, um, uh, to moist, humidify, isn't it? Yeah, humidify or, yeah. Humidified by the turbinates. So the turbinates are like Rocky mountains. So they take the molecules and they mix them up. That's how they get it humidifies. And then you're going to pick up ni- the gas nitric oxide from your paranasal cavity. And every time you carry that nitric oxide into your lungs, you bring the blood to your upper lungs. So you're increasing alveolar ventilation and ventilation perfusion, which means your oxygen carrying capacity goes up as an athlete by learning to breathe through your nose and down if you breathe through your mouth. So that's really important. So here I am running a 10K, breathing through my nose. Now you got that perfected, but now you want to start to breathe three seconds in, five seconds out. And my son's a big time runner and he could do that. He could run a five minute mile that way. So now your goal is when you're doing your 10K is now you have to start trying to perfect your cadence while you run. And if you can't run as fast, then you're going to have to run slower because your respiratory center is going to have to learn to cadence breathe. So what I tell people, and it's hard to do with athletes, but your breathing should dictate how hard you exercise and never the other way around. But most people are on teams, they're being pushed by their coaches, and the coaches don't know about breathing, so they're pushing them too hard. They're pushing them past the limit, 
of chemoreception, which means they're increasing lactic acid. And it's why most athletes break down. One question I have on that is, I know ideally nasal breathing throughout our workouts and breathing should dictate the level of intensity, but is there a time and a place for like, I guess, very high intensity interval training and for top level level athletes that need to be really doing these like certain sets? Um, is it okay to mouth breathe for, um, I guess like 10% of your training or something like that? Because I know for myself, like if I'm doing anything like (laughs) stairs or hill sprints or, or anything like that, like I, I, cannot maintain breathing through my nose, but it's still important that I get that training in. Like, where is that balance? Well, that's, that's a great question. And you see, you want to believe that it's important for you to get that training in Mm -hmm. because you've been taught that it's important for you to get that kind of training in, except breath holding gives you all of that and more without the training. Did you know that part? No, I didn't. Is that because we're I guess, let, let me just think through this a little bit. When we breath hold, we're building up um, carbon dioxide. So we're actually, are we enhancing our body's ability to buffer like the acidity? So it kind of, it mimics like the lactic acid buildup, right? Absolutely. Okay. So your training and even your ego, because it feels good, man. You want to push yourself and you know you feel like you need to push yourself, but you get all of that and more in a breath hold, in an extended breath hold. And it's safer and more effective because breath holding has been around for eons and there's massive amounts of research out there that say it's safe and effective. So the longer you can hold your breath, the longer you can do those intervals and learn to breathe through your nose while you're doing it. So you just haven't developed um, a higher level of breathing yet. Okay. You can, because the nine-year-old I work with we now have him doing 800 meter sprints. So when he gets to 750 meter mark, he holds his breath on the exhale. So think about that. He's running 800 meters all out. And when he gets to the 750 meter mark, he holds his breath. So it greatly disturbs the blood acid base balance. It places a load onto the breathing center. But like you said, as the acid level increases, the blood pH drops. So the body, learns to buffer the acid. So like marine phytoplankton, we're getting back to this, we learn to feed off of our own waste. And that's profound. And now I got to add, your kidneys are synthesizing erythropoietin, EPO, which is what the cyclists took when they blood doped. So every time you go into an extended breath hold, your kidneys synthesize this hormone. And this hormone is responsible for a lot of things, but let's talk about two. It prevents the destruction of red blood cells and it stimulates the bone marrow to make new red blood cell out of thin air. It's what every athlete wants. (laughs) Yes, that's profound. So I do breath holding every single day of my life. Maybe once in a while I take a day off. You know, so I'm constantly stimulating EPO production. And that's why I've been able to overcome every soft tissue injury I've had because I'm now in a self regeneration process and I'm getting younger. Cellularly, I'm getting younger. Like I, people that haven't seen me, and, it's, and this is good because since COVID, right? So I went out with a couple of buddies last night and they were like, oh my God, you look really good, right? You really don't look your age. And 
it's because of the breath holding techniques I do. But like you, I'm an athlete and I want to push it. So this summer I was running a hill that's pretty significant in Brooklyn and it's 204 meters. And Casey, I could run up the whole hill without breathing. And I mean, run, not just jog and like get up to the top of the hill. Like I could sprint the hill 200 meters on, on no breath. <laughs> so I've taught myself to be in an alactic anaerobic state more often. And that's what you want. As an athlete, when you're doing these high intensity intervals, what you could do is as you're doing the interval, do it breathing through your nose, but then the last 20 seconds of the interval, hold your breath. Oh man, <laughs> next workout's gonna be intense. <laughs> but then you, there's a very specific way we have to breathe when we let go. Okay. So you also have to be taught how to breathe after you let go. Yeah, because I know the initial impulse is just like <laughs> bend over, breathing through your mouth. So yeah, yeah, how should we be breathing? Well, you should be immediately trying to minimize your breathing in six breaths. So that means each breath. So obviously, you know, you're going to want to open your mouth and take, <gasps> right? So you don't, you make sure your mouth stays closed. And then of course, the first two breaths, you're going to want to take in a lot of air into your, into your nose. But you're immediately saying to yourself, okay, I put myself under the greatest amounts of stress because you can't get more, right? You can't get more stress in an environment than holding your breath at that level of difficulty. There's no other way to do it. So as the air comes in, you start to limit the amount of air. And then each exhale, you're trying to control the exhale. And then you should be able to recover within six breaths. And if you can recover within six breaths, you're ready for the next interval. Do you get what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. That's how you need to be training it. That's how I would be training you as an athlete. I wouldn't be pushing you and kicking your ass because I would know that that's actually creating more of a dysfunction in your breath. So when you say, well, we need that hard exercise to make us better athletes, it's not true. Now, if you were getting ready for a competition, I couldn't take that away from you. But if we had a longer window then I wouldn't be letting you do what you said. And I would be doing it more of what we just talked about. That makes sense. Thank you. So it's, it's not about, again, it's not, this is not a quick fix. This is a long-term solution. And yeah. I, I like that approach. It's getting to well, the root cause. As an and athlete, me? I want you to train mm -hmm. as hard as you want, as fast as you want, as long as you want. But, you know, there's no such thing as overtraining, but there is such a thing as under recovery. Because if we don't recover, then we're overtrained. Yes, that so makes sense. As, as a wrestler, as, an, as a breath coach, I want my athlete to feel like they're working hard because they want to outwork their opponent. And of course, we don't want to take that away from the athlete, but we need to make them better breathers. And that's not, that's it's starting to come on because oxygen advantage is the gold standard of breathing. There's no question we are going to be, we're going to take over the world, but not as a cult helping the world because we want to share the information. We don't want to be the best. We want to help everybody become the best version of themselves. Yeah, that's, I can hear the passion when you speak and I, I truly appreciate that. And I, I believe that everyone listening can benefit from um, applying some of these breath practices to their life. And so just, I guess, to summarize a little bit, we've covered quite a bit. Um, just starting with the Bolt score, that's something people can take away from this. They can test their own Bolt score. If they're less than 20, you recommend that they start 
um, once an hour doing those small breath holds, correct? Five to, then ten. Five to 10 minutes on Every the hour. hour. Okay. And then slowly through that, they'll increase their carbon dioxide tolerance and then they can improve their bolt score. And then ideally we want to be working up to a bolt score of, you were saying like aspirational would be 40 seconds, right? Well, aspirational for an athlete, but anything above okay. 25. So if you're under 25, you have an 89% chance of possibly getting sick, but over 25, it's the same. It's an 89% chance that you will never have any chronic degenerative disease. Okay, so perfect. 25 means you're still breathing double as much as you should be. Because if 60 seconds is the, is the gold standard, and that means I'm breathing four to six liters, excuse me, that means I'm breathing four to six liters of air every minute. So that means I'm, I'm perfectly breathing. But if my control pause is 30 seconds, it means I'm still breathing double as much as I should be. So if I'm only at 25, if I'm above 25, I'm still breathing double, but I'm out of the clear, that's pretty achievable, right? That's really mm -hmm. achievable. Now, of course, it I, those that one exercise I gave you is good, but there are, you do need to do stronger breath that, holds. That was going to be my next question. So it's okay. like, I guess for someone, so an athlete listening that wants to start experimenting with a little yeah. bit more and improving it, what would be, I guess, just the next step? Would you recommend that they start doing the breath holds during activity or or how does that work? Yeah, an athlete would start to need to do, because we have two, there's two pillars of breathing. Number one, we've, we've talked a lot about is everyday breathing mechanics, cadence breathing. The second pillar of breathing is powerful, strong breath holds. So as an athlete, again, we need to greatly disturb our blood acid-based balance because we're trying to achieve a higher threshold of carbon dioxide, increase our anaerobic threshold, which also increases our aerobic threshold. And those powerful, strong breath holds create a stronger diaphragm. So when I hold my breath, I feel diaphragmatic contractions. And that's the only time I strengthen my diaphragm. So I need to do a powerful, strong breath hold to really get that, that bolt score to go up. It won't be enough to just do the many small breath holds. You'll need powerful, strong breath holds to okay. achieve a bolt score. Okay. And so to do these stronger breath holds, um, do you recommend that we take the normal inhale, normal exhale, and then hold for max? Or I know um, I've been doing some like, I guess, yoga pranayama techniques. And sometimes for these really long breath holds, you almost like hyperventilate a little bit before. So you're kind of blowing off some of the carbon dioxide. So then I guess you can hold your breath longer and you're dropping your O2 saturation even lower. Well, that's not what, true. No? Okay. What do you recommend to do these maximum breath holds? Like what is your um, instruction? There's research science that says every time you hyperventilate and then hold your breath, you will never recover the CO2. It goes less and less each breath hold. And that's concrete science. Okay. That has, I'm not sure again, which paper, but it's in our instructor portal. So he shows it in the master instructor training. Mm -hmm. He shows this one paper that says every time you hyperventilate and then hold your breath, and you're told if you can hold your breath longer, you're recovering the CO2. It's actually not true. You, your CO2 levels will still drop, even though you're holding your breath longer, if you hyperventilate. So we just take the hyperventilation away. We just say, well, don't hyperventilate. Just take a normal breath in, normal breath out. And, and then each maximum. time I hold my breath longer, I, I am then getting that increased CO2. So that's it. We just, okay. cut, that, we just cut that out. And how many... I guess like, so do your max breath hold and then resume normal cadence breathing. And then how many times would you recommend someone start doing that? Like just once, twice, three times. Uh, I'm, I'm looking for a prescription, I guess. <laughs> yeah. 
So three, Buteco had me doing three breath holds four times a day, always before food, always before food. Um, for an athlete, I would say five breath holds three times a day, always before food. Why before food? Uh, just because when you eat, your, your body has to utilize oxygen and your carbon dioxide, you're reducing metabolism. So your CO2 levels are going to drop. So you won't be able to hold your breath long at all. It'll okay. be very, t- very terrible. It, all right, it doesn't, before food. <laughs> it doesn't feel good. It's already hard enough to hold your breath. And then if you do it after you eat, you're going to be like, oh my God, I don't want to, you don't, you're going to say, I don't want to do this. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so for the prescription, it would be five. So the reason we do five is because five lasts for three hours. So the spleen will continue to vent for three hours, which means for three hours, it'll still continue to pump red blood cells into the system. So your spleen is your blood bank. It controls your hematocrit level. Hematocrit is the amount of hemoglobin in every red blood cell. We know that hemoglobin carries oxygen. So if we have high CO2 levels and high hematocrit levels, that means more CO2, more hemoglobin, more soluble oxygen, right? And every five we do, it lasts for three hours. Now, there's also a very specific way, like we talked about, after I do my breath hold, I minimize my breathing in six breaths, and then I have to cadence breathe. So in our cadence breathe, we do four, four breaths in, four seconds in, six seconds out. So after the breath hold, I minimize in six, and then I cadence breathe for 60 to 90 seconds, even up to two minutes. If you need more rest, you take it. But for a big time, for somebody I've been training, I want to get the recovery less. But let's say 60 to 120 seconds rest in between every breath hold. Because I, again, I want to normalize. I want my CO2 levels to come back down in the middle of a breath hold. Because if they stay up, then I'm not going to be able to hold my breath as long. So I want them to recover. Okay. And if I do that five times, it lasts for three hours. Okay, perfect. I think that's a really good starting point for most people. Um, I feel most people, <laughs> there's a lot people can take away and start practicing with this. So thank you so much. Um, I would love to just hear what your daily breath practice looks like. Um, and if that changes or if you stick with something consistent every day, I'd be interested in that. Well, I would also love to say too about what we just said is that when you hold your breath, everyone wants the result. They want to see their breath hold times go up. And on Instagram, I'm always posting of these really cool things that I can do and how long I can hold my breath. But it's not about that. It's about just the simple fact that you hold your breath, you're getting incredible, um, powerful reactions in your body. So never worry about the breath hold time. Never get to the end and get to the stage where you're pushing yourself so much that you see stars or you're blacking out because it's not going to make you a better, better breather faster. It's just going to create more disconcernment in your own body of going, Oh my God, I, if every time I get to that level, you're right, it's going to actually make you not want to do it. So I would always say, stop around 90%. Don't force the breath hold because it takes months to be able to increase your breath hold time. So for me, I've been at it four years now. This January is four years that I've been not Wim Hofing. I've been Buteco and Oxygen Advantage holding my breath. And I don't consider myself a master 
because number one, my control pause is not 60 seconds. And I know somebody can hold their breath for 11 minutes. And that's why I named my company tag name superhuman because she's superhuman and she's my age. So um, what I do is I wake up in the morning, I, uh, I meditate uh, on a specific breathing pattern. I meditate and then I do my, my five strong breath holds. I almost never sit because I like, I like to let the, the jets fly. I'm an athlete, I need to move. So I do lots of different movements and hold my breath. Today, I have a rhino rope that people jump, but we don't jump rope. We roll the ropes, the David Weck rolling the ropes. So I did five strong breath holds while rolling the rope. So I'm rolling this really heavy rope and I'm holding my breath. And then I minimize my breathing as fast as I can. And then I wait 60 to 90 seconds and then I do it again. And it took about, I think it was 14 minutes. So after those 14 minutes, I wait for three minutes. I recover my blood gas. So my carbon dioxide levels come back down. My blood pH comes back to normal. And then I start my workout. And then I want to work out as hard as I can pretty much every time I train. I want to train and I don't train more than 30 minutes because I'm not, I'm not like you. I'm not training to be a fighter. So those days are over for me. So I want to train hard, but I want to be effective. So usually when I get to the 30 minutes, I know when I'm done because I'm no longer able to control my breathing rate. So as soon as I can't control my breathing rate, I say, oh, my diaphragm is now tired. So now it means stop exercising, Brian, because if you continue to exercise, you're going to breathe harder. Your lactic acid levels are going to go up and you're not going to be able to remove the waste. And I want to be able to work out the next day and the next day. I don't want to have to take a day off. I like to move. I'm a true mover. So I hope, I hope this, right. This is all. Yeah, of course. It's, it's about the longevity of it. It's not killing yourself for two hour workout, not being able to move the next day. It's it's the, the, the long-term process. Right. You shouldn't be, you shouldn't have to lie down for an hour after you work out. It means that you, if you throw up, it means that you went toxic. If you throw up in the middle of a workout, which I've done many times, it means that your lactic acid levels dropped so, or they went up so high that you had to vomit the poison, right? Your blood went so alkaline and people think, oh, it's good. I pushed myself. No, no, it's bad. Okay. <laughs> Good. I feel a lot of people are relieved to hear that. You don't need to throw out to have an effective workout. No, no. So then uh, my, I, I have another time during the day, usually around three or four o'clock where I do another five breath holds. So I might go out into my stairwell and walk some stairs, or I might jog in the, in the, cause now it's getting cold again. So, but otherwise I do five twice a day. And that's my breath practice. And that keeps me feeling really, really sharp. So the breath holding does so many things for you. It's not just about being a good athlete, being a good breather. It's really about becoming the best version of yourself. And you start to feel and and see that in your everyday life. It starts to manifest. Um, It's amazing. You've shared so much valuable information. And I really appreciate this. Um, as we close out, I guess, what is just one thing that you would like people listening to take away from this conversation? One lasting message. Well, make sure you're breathing through your nose when you're awake and when you're sleeping. So 
if you think you breathe with your 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 nose when you're sleeping, one way to tell is if you wake up in the morning, if you have a dry mouth, then your mouth was open. If you're congested, your mouth was open. So everybody who's ever taped their mouth, Patrick makes great tape. There's a lot of tapes out there, but they cover the lips and people are afraid to suffocate. So it's okay. It's a valid concern. So Patrick makes tape that's myotape and it goes around your lips and it pushes them together and it helps to keep your jaw shut. So I would say, number one, learn to breathe through your nose for the rest of your life and never breathe through your mouth. Never. It's not part of the respiratory organ. It's an emergency breathing system. If something happens to my nose, then of course I could open my mouth to breathe, but it's an emergency system. It doesn't, you off gas, you, you release too much CO2, you release moisture and you don't produce any nitric oxide. So it's not part of the breathing mechanism. So learn to breathe through your nose while you're awake and while you're sleeping, and then start to breathe effortlessly. Learn to breathe effortlessly. And then don't worry about all the other stuff. You can take my breathing course if you want, you know, if we want to talk about that afterwards. I was, yeah, I was going to say that. So if people are listening and they want to reach out, connect with you, take your course, learn from you, uh, where can they find you and where would you direct them? Thank you. Well, my Instagram channel is really pretty much all about athletics and breathing. And that's breathing with Brian. You got to spell Brian with a Y because there's another Brian, Brian McKenzie, but we're different because I'm oxygen advantage. So um, breathing with Brian on Instagram. Um, my, my website is quantum fitness. I named it quantum because oxygen carries a positive electron. So the more oxygen you have in your body, the more light you're going to bring into your body. So it's all about energy. So I, you have energy, but it's not, it's not unbridled energy where you use it all and then you crash. It's, it's um, sustained energy all day long. So it's quantumfitness.org. If you click on the tab that says Breathing with Brian, it'll take you to my, I have a 10-minute webinar where I tell you everything about the, the program. So it's a 30-day program. It's You get to keep it for life. You get a video every single day. The first seven days are free, so you get to try it out. And then if you want to keep it, on the eighth day, you get your first breathing practice. On the 15th day, you get a second breathing practice. On the 22nd day, you get a 45-minute breathing practice. So within 30 days, I teach you how to breathe for the rest of your life. You will know how to breathe for the rest of your life. Will you become a good breather? No, not in 30 days. It takes practice. But you'll have the videos. You'll have all the information for life. And then I add people to a private Telegram group, which is called Breathing with Brian. So I'm trying to create a heart-centered community that we call hashtag pro breathers because if you're breathing gently and calmly then you are emanating love to the world because if you're if your control pause is high you feel good you emanate love to the rest of the world you increase the collective vibration and then every wednesday night we have a live zoom call where everybody comes back online and they share their experiences if they're new members, they can ask questions. So I'm with them live. And, uh, but really it's here about hearing everybody's transformations and the call can last anywhere from 60 minutes to two hours. Like I don't cap it because I love it. So it's my, really my only interaction. I used to do a live class, but most people weren't coming to the live class because they realized they could watch the recordings. So I made a recordings. Um, so that's it. 
that's my Instagram channel. That's my website. You know, I'm also available for one-on-one breathing as an oxygen advantage instructor. So if you don't want to do breathing with me one-on-one, you can buy the program. And um, I'm available for health appointments because as you said, I'm a fruitarian. When I was a heavy meat eater and hyperventilating, I couldn't remove the obstructions and everything was going wrong in my body because I was <gasps> heavily breathing, which created a lot of internal pressure, which had a which equates to a low heart rate variability. And that is why they saw that I could potentially have a heart attack in my 60s and die. And now I have a very high HRV because I breathe very gentle all the time and I am clean. So my lymphatic system is clean. My kidneys are working. So when you learn to breathe correctly, you clean your kidneys. And that's really the most important thing. Everything is so interconnected. Yeah. Yeah. It's really just about, you know, being the God particle that you are, the expression of whatever creator you want to believe in, however you want to believe in it. You are this beautiful being and you are. Everybody is beautiful. Thank you. you. I think you have to breathe easily to know it. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's a really good uh, point to end off on and everyone can um, keep that with them for the rest of the day. So thank you, Brian. I truly appreciate you taking the time. And I think this is, I think people will get a lot out of this conversation. My pleasure, Casey. Thank you so much. And thank you to all your beautiful listeners out there. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Plant Fueled Podcast. Just a reminder, be sure to check out the show notes for all the resources mentioned and details on how to connect with our guest. If you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe and share the show with friends, family, or anyone else who may benefit. And one small favor, I would really appreciate it if you could leave a five-star rating or review wherever you are listening. It helps other people discover the show and spread this information. If you have any comments or feedback, please feel free to reach out to me on Instagram. Anyways, be sure to move your body, eat some plants, be grateful for the little things, and until next time.